In Our Nig, Harriet E. Wilson shared uncomfortable truths about how black people were treated in the North. In 1859, when the book was published, Northerners thought they were better than Southerners because Northerners wanted to end slavery. I wouldn't blame you for assuming that Northerners were less racist than Southerners, but that was not true then, and it is not true now. Northerners were just as racist and hateful as Southerners. Many Northerners wanted to end slavery, but they still believed that white people were superior to black people. Harriet Wilson uses fictional characters in Our Nig to tell her own autobiographical story. The title of the book is Our Nig, Sketches from the Life of a Free Black, and it's an autobiographical novel, and it was first published in 1859. We know 1859 is the time just prior to the start of the Civil War, when the North was fighting against the South to end slavery and keep America as one country. So this book, our Nig, Sketches from the Life of a Free Black, was rediscovered in 1981 by Henry Louis Gates Jr., and it was then reissued with an introduction by him in 1984. And for a long time, it was considered the first novel published by an African-American woman in the United States. But that record is now contested by another manuscript that Henry Louis Gates Jr. found, which is called The Bond Woman's Narrative. And that may have been written a few years earlier than Our Nig. I'm going to dive into what the book is about. I don't think listening to this will ruin the book for you. I think it might actually help you understand what's going on in the book, and I definitely recommend that you read this one. I think it's just a good idea to get some background on it before you read it, because some of the language, some of the vocabulary is actually kind of difficult. Our Nig opens with the story of Mag Smith. Mag Smith is a white woman who lives in the North, in the United States, and she became pregnant and she was left alone so she gave birth to a child out of wedlock and this was in the mid-1800s when that would have been very difficult for a single woman. But the child died and Mag was not as devastated as maybe she should have been. She seemed in some ways thankful and she moved away to a place where no one knew her because I guess she felt like she could start over. So she had already gained a bad reputation for becoming a mother without being married, and then the child died, so she was able to move away and sort of start over. But in the new town, she meets a really kind-hearted African man. So as I said, Mag Smith is a white woman, but this African man, Jim, falls in love with her. And she's so poor that she realizes that she can either marry Jim or become a beggar. So she marries Jim just so that she doesn't have to be completely poor and unable to feed herself. After they get married, they have two children. They have a daughter and a son. We don't know the son's name, but the daughter's name is Fredo. So their dad, Jim, becomes sick and then he died. And now Mag is left alone to provide for the children. Mag was very bitter about this, but she allowed one of Jim's business partners, a guy named Seth, to become her common-law husband. But Mag and Seth realize that they need to leave that town to look for work, and they don't want to take both of the children with them. Seth suggests that they 
they send Fredo to live and work for the Belmonts. The Belmonts are this lower middle class white family who live nearby. So Mag is Fredo's mom, but she doesn't seem to actually care very much about her children. And I get the impression that she married this black guy just because she wanted to have food to eat, a place to live, not because she actually loved him and not because she actually had an interest in being a mother to black children. So Mag actually does send Fredo to live with the Belmonts. And this was a terrible decision for Fredo because she was treated horribly by most of the members of the Belmont family. Fredo was only six years old when she was dropped off at the Belmonts. And she actually believed that her mom was going to come back later in the day to pick her up. But after a few days, Fredo and the Belmonts realized that Mag never really meant to come back. So Mr. Belmont, the dad in the family, is portrayed as a kind and humane person, but his wife, Mrs. Belmont, is the complete opposite. She is an evil, disgusting person. The Belmonts have four children of their own. Two boys, Jack and James. James doesn't actually live with the family anymore, but they also have two girls, a daughter who is ill, her name is Jane, and then another daughter who is just horrible, just like her mom. Her name is Mary. So Mary and Mrs. Belmont basically terrorize Fredo. But Mr. Belmont has a sister, Abby, who also lives with the family. Abby and Mr. Belmont are actually kind to Fredo. When the family realizes that Mag had no intention of coming back to pick Fredo up, they debate whether or not to keep Fredo, and they have to figure out if she stays, where will she sleep? So Fredo is sent to live in a separate part of the house that is kind of small, and they realize that she's soon going to outgrow it. Mrs. Belmont is not happy happy with Fredo living with them, but she puts her to work doing household chores and she's just constantly berating her and hitting her. Mr. Belmont is much kinder, but he does not want to interfere with his wife's right to rule in the home, so he doesn't protest Mrs. Belmont's treatment of Fredo. So Fredo lives in a small room. It's just some unfinished chamber over the kitchen, and as a year passes, Fredo accepts that she is part of the Belmont family. Jack buys Fredo a dog named Fido, who becomes her friend and eases her loneliness. Fredo is allowed to attend school with Mary. One afternoon on their way home, Mary tries to force Fredo into a stream, but falls in instead. Mary runs home to tell her mother that Fredo pushed her into the water. Fredo receives a whipping from Mrs. Belmont while Jack tries to defend Fredo. Then Fredo runs away. When Fredo runs away, Mr. Belmont, Jack, and James, the son who doesn't actually live there with them anymore, he's just visiting, they all go looking for Fredo. After they find her, she tells James that if God made him, Aunt Abby, and Mrs. Belmont white, then Fredo does not like God for making her black. On the first day of spring, a letter arrives from James about his declining health. So James comes back with his wife and son to visit his family. Mrs. Belmont beats Fredo senseless and says if she tells James, Mrs. Belmont will cut her tongue out. By November, James's health starts to deteriorate further, and Mary leaves home to stay with her brother Louis. James requests that Fredo stay by his bed until further notice. Mrs. Belmont discovers Fredo reading the Bible and speaks to her husband about Fredo going to the evening meetings. So basically, Mrs. Belmont does not want Fredo reading the Bible. She does not want Fredo being converted to Christianity because then she would be required to treat her humanely. James, the Belmont's son, actually died the following spring. After James's death, Fredo feels like she is unworthy to be in heaven. So she goes to Aunt Abby, Mr. Belmont, 
Beaumont's sister. Aunt Abby teaches Fredo about God in the Bible and invites her to a church meeting, and she encourages Fredo to believe in God and seek the passage of heaven. Mr. Belmont starts to become worried about Fredo's health because she is being beaten so badly by Mrs. Belmont, so he tells Fredo to try to avoid his wife. Before Mrs. Belmont can hit Fredo for taking too long to bring firewood, Fredo threatens that she will not do any more work for Mrs. Belmont if she hits her, and Mrs. Belmont actually stops hitting her. She doesn't hit her, so from there on, she actually whips her way less. The family gets news that Mary Belmont had died from an illness. Fredo actually rejoices in the death of her tormentor and considers leaving the Belmonts, but Aunt Abby actually advises her not to leave. Fredo decides to wait until her indenture contract is over at the age of 18. After a while, Jane Belmont leaves the house, Jack moves in with his wife, Fredo actually helps Jack's wife escape Mrs. Belmont's tormenting. When Fredo turns 18, arrangements are made for her to sew for the Moore family. Due to her ailing health, she slowly becomes unable to work. She moves to a shelter where two elderly women take care of her for two years. For a while, she is nursed by Mrs. Moore, but after her husband leaves, Fredo is forced to find work. She finally is employed by a poor woman in Massachusetts who instructs her on making bonnets. Even though Fredo is pretty feeble and her health is not good, she's able to make some decent wages. And after a few years, she moves to Singleton. Fredo then married a fugitive slave named Samuel, but she actually notices that her back has been more seriously marked by beatings than his. Fredo was never a slave, but she was beaten more severely than some people who were born into slavery. Samuel, Fredo's husband, constantly leaves her to go lecture on the abolitionist circuit. During his travels, Fredo is at home with very little money. She is expected to depend on herself alone, even during the birth of her child. During Samuel's absence, Fredo becomes sick again. She takes her child and finds shelter in the home of a poor woman, where she later recovers. Then, she receives word that her husband died of yellow fever in New Orleans, so she's forced to find work, and she has to travel through different towns of Massachusetts. Fredo's friend gave her a recipe for turning hair back to its original color. This is how she supports herself by making and selling this preparation. The story ends with us hearing about the destinies of all of the characters. Mr. and Mrs. Belmont, Aunt Abby, Jack, and his wife have all died. Jane and her husband Henry, Susan, who was James's wife, and her son all have become old. No one remembers Fredo. The last line of the book ends with, quote, but she will never cease to track them till beyond mortal vision, end quote. Even though the families she worked for may have forgotten about Fredo, she still remembers them. So again, the characters in the book were Mr. Belmont, who was the patriarch of the Belmont family, Mrs. Belmont, who was the matriarch of the Belmont family, and she was a tyrannical, terrible person. Mag Smith was Fredo's mother, and remember, she was a very poor white woman. Jim was Mag's husband, so this was Fredo's father, and he was a black man. Seth Shipley was Jim's partner, and he later became Mag's common-law husband. Fredo is the main character of the novel. She's a protagonist. Mary Belmont was the most active daughter in the house. She was a terrible person just like her mother. Jack Belmont was the youngest of the three sons in the Belmont family. Jane Belmont was their daughter. She was the one who was sick. James Belmont was the middle son of the Belmonts. And Louis Belmont was the oldest son of the Belmonts. Fido was Fredo's dog. And Aunt Abby was Mr. Belmont's sister. If you're wondering how this book was received by the American public, 
public, I can say not well. John Ernest in Economies of Identity argues that Harriet E. Wilson's Our Nig was marginalized by a white audience because it appealed directly to a colored audience. The distribution of the book was limited and it was not appreciated by Northern abolitionists because the author called for awareness of the abuse and shadow of slavery that existed even in the Northern United States. Ernest asserts that Wilson risked undermining the paradigm that African American narratives portrayed of the New England ideal. So basically, people did not like the book because it flew right in the face of all the nonsense they were trying to spew about how New England was so much better than the South because people were free and you could see that even free people weren't really free. In Racial Innocence, Performing American Childhood from Slavery to Civil Rights, Robin Bernstein argued that the novel responds critically to Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and to other works of abolitionist fiction that debate whether black children who die may become angels. Cynthia J. Davis wrote an article where she argues and analyzes the alternative representations of black women that Harriet Wilson presents. Davis includes other critics' comments and perspectives in order to come to her own conclusions. Quote, one marker of the way in which our nig signifies on dominant representations is the fact that in light of extreme sexualization of black women's bodies, it is a white woman who Wilson represents as sexual, Fredo's mother Mag, but not Fredo herself, end quote. Wilson presents a challenging view of white women and black women. Although Fredo is born to a white mother, because her father is black and she has identifiably African features, she is considered black. She defies convention and she is not promiscuous, but her white mother lost her virginity before marriage, had a child out of wedlock, and married twice. Eric Gardner wrote an article where he explores why the novel initially escaped notice and was not widely publicized. He argued that, quote, of the owners of our nig who have been traced, more than half were children, end quote. Many white abolitionists were not as concerned with the issue of race as they were with the issue of slavery, and our nig may have seemed unflattering to northerners and abolitionists in its content. Quote, Wilson depicts aspects of northern life that abolitionists would have regretted, end quote. Gardner concludes that although Wilson may not have received the support she wanted or even needed, publishing Our Nig may have succeeded in aiding Wilson to reach her goal of achieving, quote, self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction, end quote. She did gain a faithful group of supporters, even though that group was kind of small. Lois Levine wrote an article where she incorporates her view on the two-story house, symbolizing the ties that bind her. The substandard space which Fredo is given makes her believe in her low status. She starts to believe that she must fit within these spatial restrictions. Fredo knows only what she has been surrounded by. The Belmonts and others in their society believe the individual is determined by race. Fredo can't break the chains of this household where such inhumane conditions are set, so breaking the chains in her mind would be equally, if not more, difficult to escape. The physical prison which she has been doomed to live in translates into her mental incapacity. Although she leaves the White House due to the damage and treatment she received there, she will never truly be free. Growing up, that environment is all Fredo knew. It's all the familiarity that she had to compare every other upcoming experience to. The fact that she grew up in the North, a free place, further incapacitates her, for there is no escape for her. There is no geographical positive. She has no sense of freedom because she was raised as a prisoner in a free land and was cheated out of ever claiming it. She had no choices. She had no will. She had only her thoughts and her pain to look to. She can leave the walls that held her restrained in the past, but she cannot leave 
leave her mind, thoughts, and memories. They hold her eternally captive. Our nig did not sit well with white people in the North, partly because rather than criticizing slavery in the South, it also indicts the economy of Northern states. Specifically, the novel lambasts the practice of keeping poor people as indentured servants and the poor treatment of blacks and whites. One critic actually stated that Northern abolitionists did not publicize our nig because it criticized the North. In my next episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Harriet E. Wilson and different aspects of her life, but I highly recommend that you read Our Nig. I think it is a really interesting, thought-provoking book. It is kind of difficult to read because it's hard to hear about a child being treated in that way, but I think it's important for us to understand the true history of the United States and understand what it was like for real people living at that time. This is a fictional novel, but like I said, it's actually based on actual events from Harriet's life, so you can get a sense of who she was if you just follow certain things that happened in the book. And it's devastating to think that she might have actually been treated that way as such a small child. It is just heartbreaking. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Path of a Green Witch podcast.